After almost two years of sermons in the book of Isaiah, we're going to move on this morning, so I invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah, chapter (laughs) 1. Okay, (laughs) a pastor pastor friend of mine uh, at General Assembly this past summer, I told him I was preaching through Isaiah, and he told me he had done just the same uh, recently himself. His wife overheard the conversation and, uh, and said that when he finished up Isaiah with this congregation, he, uh, he did the same thing. And the next Lord's Day, turned to Jeremiah 1, and uh, they didn't laugh either. <laughs> we're we're going to take to a newer part of our Bibles, not 2,700 years old, but only 2,000 years old, uh, the Gospel of Luke, to which I ask you to turn your attention with me. As you're turning, may I remind you that this is where Isaiah was looking on tiptoe through the telescope when we left him last week. He was looking to a day when the doors would fling open to welcome the flood of Gentiles who were to be engrafted into the covenant tree. Well, here we have a Gentile gospel writer, at least his name is Greek, uh, Luke, writing to a man also with a Greek name, Theophilus. It is a typical Uh, what we're going to read this morning, of the kind of formal introductions with which ancient historians uh, would, uh, you know, start off their histories, uh, like Herodotus or Thucydides or Josephus, how they'd commence their historical records. Thucydides, for example, uh, introduced his history of the Peloponnesian War with this. But as to the facts of the occurrences of the war, I have thought it my duty to give them, not as ascertained from any chance informant, nor as seemed to me probable, but only after investigating with greatest possible accuracy each detail in the case of both the events in which I myself participated and those regarding which I got my information from others. And the endeavor to discover these facts was a laborious task. Well, with Luke in his uh, ancient history, written for us here, uh, it was the same. He labored much uh, to discover and accurately to record these facts of history that will be before us, uh, the Lord willing, in the months to come. Only he labored by a much higher principle and for a much higher purpose than simply to record a history for the sake of history. He wrote, out of his research, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of assuring faith and confidence and trust and certainty in Christ, who is revealed uh, to us in this gospel. So let's, before we begin this series in Luke and this installment in particular this morning, pray. And I'm going to conclude the prayer with the 17th century prayer from the English Book of Common Prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we begin this series in the Gospel of Luke, we pray for thy spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to receive marvelous things and to have our faith once again built on the rock-solid foundation of Christ our Lord, and that that faith itself would be vitalized and our confidence fixed all the more upon him. Almighty God, who called the Luke, uh, Luke the physician, whose praise is in the gospel, to be an evangelist and 
physician of the soul, may it please thee that by the wholesome medicines of the doctrine delivered by him, all the diseases of our souls may be healed through the merits of thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Luke chapter 1, we'll be reading just the first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We all have our doubts. From time to time, our faith falters. Let's just be honest about it. Some of you have come to me from time to time expressing your own struggles, your own falterings with believing what you've been taught, even from your youth, what you've known all your lives. And all of us always are found at one point or another along that spectrum of faith expressed so perfectly by a man whose words were recorded in another of the Gospels who cried out through his tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There are days when for us there's no reason whatever to Question the certainty of Jesus' birth, of the Virgin Mary, or his life, or his miracles, or his claims, his resurrection, and so on. Or that salvation is found in him and in him alone. And then there are those days on which, as the poet put it, a mosquito buzzes round my faith. The mosquito of, of doubt. Well, Luke is going to pull, off, pull, pull out his can of off spray uh, this morning. And uh, for the weeks to come, if, my, if I may switch from poetry to prose, he writes, verse 4, You may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. But who is this you about whom he writes? Well, Luke's original audience, his intended audience, according to verse 3, is an individual by the name of Theophilus. Now, we don't have much information about Theophilus. Uh, Actually, we don't have any uh, other than the name about which we may be certain. Uh, Scholars, Bible scholars, even debate whether Theophilus refers to a specific person. Uh, It is possible that um, Luke uses this name, which means, by the way, friend of God or uh, lover of God or beloved of God, uh, to refer um, generally to the church of Jesus Christ. 
It's not unknown for a writer to do that sort of thing, use a generic name for a wider audience. Uh, In that sense, of course, we may say that Luke's gospel is for anyone who might be described as a friend of God. But the fact that there were people living at that time whose names uh, were Theophilus causes us to think that in all likelihood this is a specific person. The fact that Luke ascribes to him a title, most excellent uh, Theophilus, uh, causes us to wonder if perhaps this is a, a ranking official maybe in the Roman Empire to whom he's writing, especially since Claudius Lysias uses that same title for Governor Felix in his letter to him concerning Paul, as recorded in the book of Acts, also, by the way, written by this same Luke, uh, and also to Theophilus. At any rate, it is a kind providence, to my mind, because when you and I take up the book of Luke to read, the you to whom Luke writes might just as well be we. You and I are beloved of God. That's a point Phil Riken makes anyway. As he reads this verse, he asks, who is Theophilus? And he answers, you are Theophilus, if you love God and if you are loved by him. Therefore, God, the Luke's gospel is for you. And it is written so that you may be certain. That's the point. A few years ago, uh, Sam Harris, a well-known atheist and best-selling author, said in an interview with Newsweek magazine, and repeated it in an interview with PBS, that, um, quote, I don't want to pretend to be certain about anything I'm not certain about. Well, ironically, another best-selling author by the name of Luke agrees completely with this atheist, Sam Harris, on that point. We don't want to be certain and pretend to be certain about anything we're not certain about. Which is precisely why Luke wrote this famous gospel. It's Luke's intention that the time we spend in his gospel should make us all the more confident, all the more certain about this Jesus, this historical Jesus, God the Son incarnate, miracle-working, kingdom-preaching, temple-cleansing, dying, rising, ascending, returning, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And about the salvation, of course, that is ours in Him and in Him alone. So before we leave this portico of Luke, these first uh, four verses, and the Lord willing enter into the temple proper next week, I want to make some general observations, four of them actually, about this gospel springing from these verses of Luke uh, this morning. First, notice that Luke's gospel is a researched gospel, uh, researched history. Start with me again at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, 
the things that Luke heard from eyewitnesses, from ministers who preached Christ, and he's probably referring to the apostles, Luke followed very, very closely. Luke was not an apostle himself, nor was he a direct eyewitness to these things about which he writes. He acknowledges that. He's perfectly honest about that from the outset. He was a physician. He was a doctor. He was also a companion, by the way, of the apostle Paul, whom Paul calls his fellow worker. May well be the one to whom Paul refers in his letter to the Corinthians as the brother who is famous among the churches for his preaching of the gospel. At any rate, uh, Dr. Luke, as we may call him, was perfectly positioned to know the truth and the history of Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness of the apostolic ministry. He was a member of the early church. He, as he writes in verse 3, followed these things very closely. He's been likened to an investigative reporter with a doctor's gift for observation. That, by the way, might go a long way toward explaining why Luke's gospel is the longest book in the New Testament and contains material that is missing from the other gospels. During the uh, during this Advent season, we'll be treated to information about John the Baptist and about Jesus' infancy that uh, we know only from this gospel. Information he likely gathered from interviewing uh, their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth. Norval Geldenheis explains how Luke must have done his work. Quote, through long periods during his travels along with Paul and also at other times, he made thorough researches concerning the gospel stories so that he was able to set forth the actual course of events. He collected and studied all available written renderings of words and works of Jesus. Wherever the opportunity was presented to him, he discussed the gospel stories with persons who possessed firsthand knowledge concerning him. And during his stay in Jerusalem and in other parts of Palestine, he collected as much information as possible concerning the buildings and places connected with the history of Christ. This is all clearly evidenced by the contents of the third gospel, end quote. Phil Riken adds this, if Mark was a storyteller and John a philosopher, then Luke was an investigative reporter. The result of Luke's careful research is that reading his gospel helps us to know for sure Luke did his work with all the rigor of a prize-winning journalist. Which may be a mixed review for us who know journalists today. But uh, when Luke was satisfied that he had the story straight, he wrote it all down. As a careful historian, he wrote a sober, straightforward, non-sensationalized account of what Jesus did to save the world. The Gospel of Luke bears all the marks of authentic history. We are reading the real story of Jesus. End quote. That leads me to say, second, that this is also a reliable history. Luke was not relying on mere rumors when he wrote this Gospel, this history. He went right to the eyewitnesses. He got the scoop from them. 
These were the the people who saw with their own eyes the the hungry eating, the, the lame leaping, the blind seeing, the dead rising. These were memorable events, and as such events will do, they had emblazoned themselves on the minds of these witnesses. Even years later, they could recall in vivid detail what had taken place in these events. Friday night as I was driving southbound on on the Natcher Parkway toward Bowling Green, another semi approached me from behind and and, uh, quickly in my mirrors he appeared and then proceeded just as quickly to blow my doors off. And um, uh, the both of us descended into a very thick fog and our lights uh, disappeared from each other's sight. He got on the radio and, and we started talking about the dangers of the road and but I stopped talking when he started to tell a chilling story. He said that about five years ago, he'd been driving on I-95, and he can remember the very spot. He's a, a cattle truck driver, notoriously fast, heavy, lead-footed cowboy. And uh, so he's flying along on I-95, and a couple of teenage boys in a little sports car Uh, flew by him as if he were standing still. They were probably, he guesses, going at least 100 miles an hour when the driver lost control, went into the median, overcorrected, crossed the road again, and slammed into a tree. Both boys were thrown halfway through the windshield, but were pinned by their legs under the dashboard. He pulled his truck off the road and ran to the car. He could see gasoline was streaming from the electronic fuel injectors. He he couldn't extract the boys, pinned as they were under the dashboard, uh, but anticipating the worst, ran back to the cab, grabbed his little fire extinguisher, and indeed the worst had happened. By the time he got back, the car had burst into flames. The streaming fuel had hit the hot manifold. At that point, the driver's voice began to to crack as he told me the story of those two boys desperately yelling, stretching their arms through the flames to him, standing helplessly a few yards away, yelling to him, Help me! Help me! Get me out! All he could do was stand there in futile horror, as he watched the terror on their faces, screaming to him from yards away, as he watched them, literally watched them burn to death before his very eyes. I'll spare you the gruesome details. Do you think that that driver remembers that scene today? I tell you what he told me. For a year, he couldn't sleep. Because every time he'd slip into, into sleep, the scene and its gruesome details would come flashing before his mind. Even years later, the details remained fixed in his mind. Now go with me to another dark scene 
much more gruesome and darker because it involves God the Son suffering all of the wrath of God for your sin and mine. Three words from the cross recorded only in Luke. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But before that, and even as they were nailing him perhaps to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Only Luke records these. Only Luke. Can you trust him? Did Jesus really say those words? How can you know? Because these were the eyewitness testimonies of people who saw his bloodied face and who heard these tortured words. And who, if they lived long enough to forget most everything they had ever known in their lives, would never forget the things they heard and saw that day at Golgotha. They couldn't forget them if they tried. Of course, our confidence that Luke's gospel is reliable is not based nearly so much on the fact that it is based on eyewitness testimony carefully researched, compared, collated into an orderly account by a precise and careful historian physician. Our confidence is that, third, this is revealed history. Now, much could be said about the process by which Luke finally came to write this gospel, these events, these particular things out of all that he could have included, and the way he did, and in the order he did. Critical scholars strain over the words and phrases of Luke, trying to trace them back to this source and that source and so on, in order to establish, they think, the trustworthiness of Luke, of the account. I don't think it's wrong to do such studies. They can be helpful, but in the end, I'm convinced those kind of investigations will always take you where you intended to go before you started the investigation. Luke acknowledges that he used sources. Of course he did. But in the process of all of that work, it is divine inspiration and providence that governed his study and his writing. Whether God spoke in all of Scripture, whether God spoke to the writer through visions or directly face-to-face as with uh, Moses or through dreams or through human testimony. It is the Holy Spirit who inspired these, these writers. It is not as though the writing of the Bible, Luke's gospel in particular this morning, must be either inspired by God or based on hard study and research and investigation. That is to make an either-or out of a both-and. God carried Luke along, providentially steering and directing his life and his research, his mind and his thoughts as he studied and, and read and listened and wrote. 
not overriding Luke, like Luke were some sort of a puppet or, or so on, or, or, or dispensing with his vocabulary or style, but rather stamping them too, right into this gospel that Luke wrote. That is ultimately and pri- primarily why Luke is reliable. Not so much because it was so intricately researched and written by a precise and careful physician, which it was, but because the physician writer was inspired, carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how a book written by a man can also be the Word of God at the same time. B.B. Warfield expressed this mystery wonderfully this way. The whole of Scripture is the product of divine activities which enter it, however, not by superseding the activity of human authors, but confluently with them. So that the Scriptures are the joint product of divine and human activities, both of which penetrate them at every point, working harmoniously together to the production of a writing which is not divine here and human there, but at once divine and human in every part, every word, every particular. Fourth and finally, this gospel is relevant for us today. It is relevant for the world and it is relevant for the church. It is relevant for our world, which is uh, pluralistic and multicultural. Not that it wasn't pluralistic and multicultural in Luke's day, of course it was. But today, with modern communication and with instant information and the internet, with many religions vying side by side for the allegiance of human beings in the world, the question needs to be faced head on. Can the ancient claims of Christ, of the requirements of exclusive trust and faith in Him alone in order to be saved, be sustained today? The answer to that question, of course, and that rises from Luke's gospel, is that those claims can not only be sustained, they must be pressed today as much as ever on the consciences of all people and of the people in particular with whom you rub shoulders every day, who must either surrender themselves to Christ or suffer his wrath for the rest of eternity. It's relevant also for the church because the church has drifted so terribly from the central figure of Scripture and of this gospel in particular, namely from Jesus Christ. Let's just be honest and plain about it. Christ is now at a great distance from the church of our day and place. Sermons, for the most part, are not centered on Christ. 
but on man. It's not the salvation that comes only through Christ, through faith alone and him alone, to escape the wrath to come that is proclaimed from the pulpit, but rather salvation of another sort, through self-improvement, so that you may have your best life now. Forgiveness of sin has been displaced by self-esteem. Substitutionary atonement, that is Christ in my place on the cross, by a Jesus that the gospel writers wouldn't even have recognized. One relegated to the passenger seat and now even to the bumper sticker. We need Luke's gospel. If for no other reason than that we need Christ. We need Christ no longer to be a distant figure, a slogan for our t-shirts, or at best our personal cheerleader. We desperately need him as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, as our Master. We need for our relationship with Christ, or better said, perhaps his relation to us, no longer to be some vague and uncertain and undefined matter, but clear and direct and, dare I say, quite simple. A Savior, the Savior of sinners, who have been saved because of what Christ has done, coming to earth in human flesh, living a life that we'll see that we couldn't have lived, dying a death that we should have lived under all of the horror of the wrath of God had he not done so in our place on the cross. So Luke's gospel is for us too, for us modern-day Theophiluses, lovers of God and beloved of him, like the original Theophilus needing certainty concerning the things which we have been taught. Luke has written that you may have it. Amen.